What famous writer fought on both sides of the U.S. Civil War? And how much perspiration does the average human being generate every day? Answers to those and other questions coming up today on The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, and take a side road to sanity. Well, we've now wrapped up four full weeks of sheltering in place during this coronavirus emergency, and Marsha and I have gathered some more fun facts and uh, fascinating trivia to share with you. Yours first. Well, thank you. I find it fascinating to know how much sweat the average person generates. You want to take a guess? In a 24-hour period, don't forget, you sleep a lot of that time. Well, so. Is it in, measured in terms of ounces or gallons or what? <laughs> I hope it's not gallons of sweat. <laughs> well, no, not gallons. Ounces? No. What's the, what's the measurement? Pints. Pints. <laughs> wow, that still seems like a lot. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, how, for, how just many, for an average person, not an athlete or how somebody. How many ounces in a pint, Bob? Oh, I don't know. 16 ounces in a pint. Okay, so um, I'll say less than a pint. I'll say a half a pint. Okay. Well, wrong. <laughs> the average person produces three pints of perspiration a day. That's an average person. Yeah. That's just average yeah, that's, walk around yeah, the house. The, the normally active human being. It's three pints. Yeah, let's see. That's, so that's... You lose three pints of liquid from your body. That's another reason you need to hydrate no matter what you do. Absolutely. Everybody should drink water. Good. Okay, I've got a, a famous... A writer, he fought on both sides of the U.S. Civil War. Hmm. You know his name, but you probably don't know he was a famous writer. I know his name. Yeah. Both sides of the war. Both sides of the U.S. Civil War. Oh, all right. Who? Henry Morton Stanley, who who later oh. became famous saying Dr. Livingston, I presume. Oh. In in 1865, he moved from Great Britain to New Orleans, the home of his adoptive father, and he was enlisted in the Confederate Army at the age of 21, so he fought for the Confederates. Then he was captured after a year's service and imprisoned, and in exchange for his release, he was to serve in the Union artillery. So he served there, and then after his discharge, he served as a ship's writer in the Navy. Later, he became a newspaper reporter, and he went on that famous assignment to find... Oh, Dr. Livingstone, I presume. Dr. Livingstone, yeah. Well, I would have never guessed him in a million years. I know, so. and I never thought of him as a famous American writer, but he was a <sighs> famous journalist is what he was. Okay, let's go back to the, the uh, Greeks and phobias. The word itself is derived from phobos, meaning fear or fright. So you got, okay, yeah. you got all sorts of... Uh, and that's a Greek word. Yes. Phobos. So uh, there's a whole big list of all these different phobias, and some are... You know, things you could probably figure out, like, uh, what do you, uh, pyrophobia, fear of? Fire. Right. Or... Um, Homophobia, <laughs> fear of homosexuality, yeah. Autophobia. Fears of automobiles. <laughs> <laughs> Is it autophobia? Is that oh, A-U-T-O? A- uh, but it's not... It's fear of yourself. Yes. Oh, my God, there's such a but, thing? Well, it's fear of being alone. Oh, autophobia. So, so. <laughs> I fear being alone with my too dangerous and, to myself. You know, and this one you, uh, is kind of self-explanatory, hemophobia. Blood. Yeah, fear, uh-huh. fear of blood. So those are some obvious ones. So here's one that we all have developed right now. It's called aclophobia. 
Oclo? Uh-huh. How do you spell that? O-C-H-L-O, phobia. O-C-H-L-O, phobia. And it's a, it's a phobia for the time. Phobia of the time? Of this time. Fear of disease? Nope. I don't know. What is it? Fear of crowds. <gasps> no kidding. So we're all kind of suffering a little bit That's true. of aquaphobia right now. You know, I, uh, we were talking, I was talking to Ben, um, our son, the other day, and he said, you know, used to be you'd take a walk, it was pleasant, but now it's like, oh, so you see somebody coming, and you go, okay, am I going to have to get off the sidewalk? Are they going to get off the sidewalk? And you and I were at a park the other day. And there was nobody else there but that lady with the dog. And I remember thinking, okay, now the dog doesn't know it's not supposed to come close to people. Is she going to hold the dog away? Or is that dog going to pull her towards us? All these little decisions you never thought of before because you like being around people. Well, that's part of your zoophobia, which is fear of animals. Zoophobia. I thought it was a fear of zoos. Yeah, you'd think, but no. I guess zoo must mean animals in Roman. But here's here's one. Just I just throw this in before you go. What is trichophobia? Trico, T-R-I-C-H-O? Correct. Trico, trico, trico. Phobia. Not a fear, fear of magicians. I don't know what. <laughs> this is so stupid. Trichophobia. What is it? <laughs> and I have this uh, first thing in the morning, fear of hair. <laughs> fear of hair? <laughs> That's what it says. Fear of hair. You know, when you look at your hair in the morning, and uh, uh, I don't want to see what I look like when I first thing in the morning oh in the my mirror. God. But yeah, there, there's a million of them here, Bob. But uh, that's funny. We'll stop with those. You know, uh, I found an interesting fact about um, some things that how some of these great epidemics changed history. Uh-huh. And this is one that happened uh, in when Napoleon the Third, not the Napoleon we're talking about, when he rebuilt Paris in the mid 19th century. Uh, one of his objects was to protect against cholera because that was a yeah. big problem. Yeah. So that is why Paris has broad boulevards where the sun and light can disperse the miasma, meaning bad air. Isn't oh. that interesting? Uh-huh. So, and then the construction of houses that led to all kinds of different types of regulations on how that major city came about. So these big, beautiful, broad streets that Paris has oh. can be related to the cholera epidemic oh, that's interesting. of the 19th century. Yeah. Uh, what about sidophobia? Oh, that must be a, is it a fear of cities? No, it's spelled S-I-T-O, sitophobia. Not a fear of sitting. No. Is this English or some other language? I, I think this is probably all Greek stuff. It's all Greek to me. I'm, okay. I'm not sure, but it's a fear of food. <laughs> a fear of food is sitophobia or cytophobia. All right, that's it for my phobias. Well, there's a lot of phobias, lots of fear going around right now, yes. that's for sure. All right. I got a, just an interesting thing about, you know, uh, we're all reading more, I would imagine, uh, one way or another. Because yeah. yep. uh, lots of books. People have books and magazines, and they're reading the web and everything else. Okay, so we all know Gutenberg was the yeah. person who kind of invented movable type, or at least popularized it. They say the Chinese may have invented that earlier. Mm-hmm. But between 1452 and 1454, that's when he published the Gutenberg Bible. So now that's 40 years before Columbus, okay? It was the first major mass-produced book in the world, but how big of an industry was printing in its early years? Just give me some thoughts on that. Well, how can I, how do you quantify big? It was like the internet of its time. Yeah. Printing books was. They went nuts. printing the Bible because no one had ever read it. Yeah, yeah. because the uh, only the priests could own yeah. the Bible back yeah. in those days. Yeah. So it was something. Uh, I have no idea, Bob. Well, 
There's this uh, new group that's been out from Oxford University. They, they've been launching a digital treasure hunt to find all the books that were published in the early years of publishing. So they made the uh, assumption, based on what they found out, that in the first 50 years following the invention of movable type, millions of books were circulating throughout Europe by 1,500 And 700 years later, now, Uh more than half a million of those books still survive. Isn't that incredible? People are building a huge electronic map to track down each book and its journey over time, including when possible, who owned it, you know, Uh based on notations and so forth. So there are 500,000 surviving books from the first 50 years of printing, and they're scattered over 4,000 libraries. That's, uh, wouldn't that be something to have? And one more question. What were the earliest bestsellers? Well, the Bible. You'd think the Bible. No. The first bestsellers were not Bibles. They were grammar manuals to teach people to read and write. Oh, excellent. After that came medical and legal texts. And then there were single sheets on current affairs. There were almanacs, books on astrology, poetry, and songs in the languages around Europe. And and while we think of Germany as the, the birthplace of publishing, Italy was the early main publishing center. Venice. Venice became Europe's most important publishing center because of its banks, insurers, and transportation, because of the economy. Printers had the technology, content managers were the authors, and then the bankers. All three of those had to come together to bring books. How exciting it must have been to see first books come into existence. And just, it was a game changer for everybody. And it was a wild west. There were people, you know, books were published that were burned and people yeah. were put thrown in prison for yeah, publishing. Because, you know, you were spreading ideas that were dangerous. You yeah, know, it's and, like the internet. uh, And you remember, you mentioned the Bible, that uh, when the Bible was first published in other languages like English and German, a lot of those publishers were thrown in prison or burned at the stake because that was not supposed to be done. Yep. So anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. And of the Bible, 180 copies were published by Gutenberg. How many remain? 50 known copies survive, but only 21 are complete copies. Oh, just parts. Yeah, yeah. 21. Yeah, so there's a, you know, the, communication Who has fact. them? Museums? I've got them all. <laughs> <laughs> Marcia thinks I'm a hoarder. Yeah, they're in the library right yeah. over there. See the bookshelves? Yeah. Those old dusty things you I want be- me to throw away? I believe Those it. are Gutenberg Bibles, honey. <laughs> all right. You can't get what, rid of those. Can, they're worth a lot Moving of money. on, Bob. Oh, okay, can okay. you tell me what animal a tigon is? T-I-G-O-N. Oh, is this a uh, hybrid animal? Is this like a tiger and a tiger and something else? Uh-huh. You're but, on the right track. But I don't know what the gun is. It's a lion. Oh, really? A tiger? Yeah, a tigon? Well, yeah. But there's very specific. A tigon is a animal that has a lion for a mother and a tiger for a dad. And the reverse, if you got a tiger mom and a lion, a lion cheating dad. What? <laughs> that's called a liger. So, a liger. Okay. Yeah, so there's a. Tigon and a liger, depending on who be your mama. All right, we were talking about this being a time of invention with people trying to come up with cures for diseases or ways of treatment. And, you know, there's all kinds of things with respirators people are trying. Here is a question. What was the inspiration for this invention that you've used all of your life and you take for granted? The safety pin. (laughs) What was the inspiration for that invention? Diapers. No. Okay, hold on. Um, no, there were no buttons. Well, it's a fastener. Yeah. True. But uh, no, what, what inspired what, what inspired? How long ago was Walter this? Walter Hunt. This was back, oh, gee, it was the turn of the 19th century, I think. Okay, hold on. Let me, okay. Uh, he was a New Yorker, uh-huh. a Quaker. 
uh, the Quakers. I, I don't know. Carry his oatmeal around? Okay, here it is. He was in debt for $5. He needed $5. Uh-huh. So he thought of all the products that were sorely needed. He came up with an idea for a pin that held different pieces of clothing together, but it would not injure the wearer. So he created that loopy little thing called the safety pin. He worked it out on a sketch. He produced a tiny model, and he sold the invention for just $400. That could have made him wealthy beyond his dreams. But he needed $5. I understand. And uh, he also had many other inventions, including a sewing machine, which he suggested his daughter could manufacture. But he dropped his idea. He never patented it. She told him it would put too many seamstresses out of work. So they didn't invent that as a result. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. See, all oh, hindsight, huh? Oh, geez. So now, since we're talking about disease, what is the healthiest period of a human being's life? Say again? What is the healthiest? The, what are the healthiest years of a human being's life? Well, that's interesting. I'm going to take a guess here and say and 28 years old. No, no. You'd think that would be good because that's when you're kind of maturing. Yeah. Everything's coming together, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And after that, it's just downhill. Downhill. Yeah, jeez, yeah. I remember 28. Is it? Yeah. What is no, it? No, it's not. The ages of 5 and 15. Between, Between the ages of 5, five and, 15. and 15. So when you're below 5, you're more vulnerable. vulnerable. And between 5 and 15, that's when resistance to disease is at its strongest Despite the childhood diseases we see. Really? Yeah, and resistance to infections decreases, uh, starts decreasing in the 20s and goes down. From the 30s onward, the body's oh, efficiency depressing. decreases. So please stay in your house, <laughs> <laughs> which we're, we're doing, right? Wow. Yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. Okay, Mr. McSmarty Pants. Mr. McSmarty Pants. <laughs> I like that. That's a they new are, one. Okay, we okay. can call you that. Yeah. All right. What person designed the Statue of Liberty for the United States. It's um, Eiffel, right, Mr. Eiffel? Very good. Yeah, the, I knew you'd know that. Bartholdi, I think, invented, designed the, the statue, but it was the superstructure inside is what Eiffel designed, as I believe, isn't it? My, my Your sources, sources, what are your sources tell sources you? My sources didn't say exactly what he did, but that was in 1876, and he didn't do the Eiffel Tower, which a little little arrogance going on there, the, uh, till 1887. So it was almost, you know, 20 years later that he did one for Paris. But yes, we got the uh, Statue of Liberty, God bless him, from France, and Eiffel uh, designed it. You and I saw a picture of the Eiffel Tower uh, the other day on the on the web, and and it was just the perspective of it showed how huge that is. And you know, we were there. We were in Paris once uh, years ago, and it was so amazingly big. I thought, oh my God, it looks like a battleship upended. You know, I could see how the initial reaction to that. Yeah, I think. Oh was, my God, this is horrible. Yeah. What, what they they got to tear this down after the World's Fair, but yeah. they didn't. That was built for a World's and Fair. I love what they do now. They they lit it up which is uh, beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Looks great. All right, we'll take a break here, and we'll be back with more in just a moment. I'm Bob Smith. Marcia Smith. And you're listening to the Off-Ramp Podcast, Coronavirus Emergency. We've heard that one of the things people first had a run on was toilet paper when this whole thing began, right? Another thing I read that people were, had a run on for product was alcohol initially. Yeah. Yeah. So here's a question. Where does the term teetotaler come from? That means abstaining from drinking, right? Right. Okay. And how old is that word? 
How old is that it's, word, Marsha? Has nothing to do with golf, I think. It. It's older than me. <laughs> okay, well, uh, I don't know, Bob, and I don't know uh, where it came from. It came from 1833 when an English prohibitionist, R. Turner, spoke at Preston, England on abstinence from alcoholic beverages. He stammered throughout the speech. And he was trying to talk about total abstinence. Uh-huh. But he said, teetotal, teetotal, oh. teetotal abstinence. Oh, you're kidding. So a teetotaler it is, really? was kind of a derogatory it's, term. Of, it's a stuttered Yeah, because he stuttered. I'll be darned. But it became a new total term abstinence. and a new word in the language. I, it, the origin of some things is amazing, preposterous. It is. It is. That They just keep carrying on. Here's, All right. Here's okay. one more origin. Sure. Where did the silver come from to make the first U.S. coins? Well, I would assume they mined it, but that would be too easy. Well, it was mined, but where did they get it? You mean what country? No, no, no. Where did the silver come from? It had to come from a source. There was a supplier of silver. Long John? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> I'm sorry. Excuse me. Let's take a pause here. Okay. No, it was uh, it was Martha Washington's silver service. Martha. Oh my gosh, they melted it. They down. melted it down to use some well, of the first. What else silver. do you do with that stuff? But I know? mean, it makes you wonder how much silver did Martha have? Yeah, yeah. I don't For know. The first coins. And they had financial problems. Uh, it's because uh, they put all their money into the tea service. Oh. Uh, well, I don't know. All right. Wow. I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, so, yeah, but how many could her tea service I don't know. make? That's what I mean, is that I you mean, think that'd be like four or five coins, right? <laughs> that's it. No, no, Martha must have had a bunch of these things, a blank load of silver. Oh, oh God. Oh, oh, I found a statistic that it, it goes along with your Lake Superior statistic, okay? Okay. Okay, so the oceans of the world, they are so vast and deep. If the Earth had a level crust, how high would the oceans be over them? How deep would the oceans be if they were laid on a flat surface that was the Earth's crust? Five feet. Five feet is what Lake Superior would be. Yeah. But if it was the oceans, yeah. how much water would that be? How For the whole Earth? Yeah. How much underwater would it how be? How tall would the oceans be? Oh. More than five feet? I, I think so. Okay. Um, I'll say, I have no idea. This is astounding. If the Earth had an absolutely level crust, the sea would form an envelope over it of 8,000 feet, 8,000 feet deep. Wow. So that's that's wow. over a mile uh. high of water over the crust of the Earth. That's yeah. how big. So that's like a mile deep. That's pretty more than a mile deep. Okay, Bob. Okay. The inventor of the toilet. <laughs> We're talking? We're talking 1878. There's so many things I could have said there. Yes. Okay. But a functional... Wonderful thing that we all have, if we're lucky. Mm -hmm. uh, 1878, Queen Victoria was so impressed that she knighted the inventor for his service to the public. Huh. I thought it was in Kohler they did it, but oh. no. <laughs> no. In the century that has followed, the flush toilet has undergone very little change. Oh, Amazing, that, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so here's the question. Okay. Who was this uh, inventor that became a knight? Uh, I'll give you three choices. Okay. Thomas Butts. <laughs> Thomas Crapper. Or Emil Toilet. Oh, now, I've always heard the Crapper was the name of the guy, but I don't know if it's true or not. It, it's so disgusting. I'll go with, the, I'll go with Toilet. <laughs> the French make everything sound good. It's a Toilet. But no, 
Sir Thomas Crapper oh, is the one that sir. got... Oh, my Sir he be, Thomas he was, Crapper. Well, he was knighted, so you get the title. And uh, that Th- was That's where name. the expression yeah. comes from. Got to yeah. take a... Okay. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, that's hilarious. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely hilarious. Sir Thomas Crapper. <laughs> Not just Tom, Tom Crapper. Hey, Tommy. No, no. Okay, he was Tom Crapper Sir before Crapper that. Sir Crapper over yeah. here. Oh, my goodness. Sir Crapper. All right. So um, you're talking about the origin of something there we all use, right? Oh, So money? I've got an origin oh, question for yes. you about a great world leader. All right. So you tell me the answer to this question. Listen up here. All right. Please put your pa- pencils down and your paper down. What great world leader was born in a lady's cloakroom at a party? Oh, I like that. Do we have any year or anything? That would be the 1800s. Is a world leader? He was a world leader. He became a world leader. I'll say, I'll say Winston Churchill. That's exactly who it was. Really? And his mother was an American. Of course, she married, <laughs> like the Downton Abbey, she married a British nobleman, you know. Yeah. And uh, she was at a party wow. with her husband. They were attending a dance in the British ancestral castle of Blenheim when she prematurely delivered in the ladies' cloakroom. See, he came, uh, he's one of my all-time favorite people. Interesting beginnings. That's fascinating. And I got it right, which is... You did get it right. ...even more fascinating. And I'll, So I'll ask you one more question. Of course you are. Okay. And this is a name, okay? So what popular plant is named after an American government official who introduced it into the United States? It wasn't the bush. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. It wasn't one of the bushes, so... Yeah, okay. But, what popular plant was named after an American government official who introduced it to the United States? Vera Cunningworth. The aloe vera plant? No? Oh, I don't that know. would be good, yeah. <laughs> no, the poinsettia. Oh. It was named okay. after a 40-year-old Joel Roberts poinsettia. Uh-huh. He was the ambassador to Mexico, and he had returned to his uh, native South Carolina in 1829. He'd been there for four years in Mexico City and brought with him this winter-blooming subtropical plant, which he discovered. So that's how it became a popular flowering winter plant, the poinsettia. Ah, I Named it after that. government bureaucrat. Okay, I know you got some more fun stuff there. I can see you sorting through it. So uh, give me another one. According to old law, each fire company that responds to a fire alarm in Marblehead, Massachusetts, is entitled to a three-gallon jug of rum. Oh, that's good. That's how they, that's how they help the fire people. Everybody shows up that way. Huh. Well, that's good. That was interesting. The English language has approximately five hundred thousand words, but almost everybody just uses this many English words in their entire lifetime. How many words would that be? Remember, there's about a half a million. Not counting technical and scientific. Half. 15,000. Uh, no, I would have guessed that too, something in that. But it's 60,000. Really? 60,000 words. That's a lot of words. What, one more. One of the oldest and most reliable calendars is... The Gregorian. Stonehenge. Oh, yeah, I guess it is. The prehistoric stone structure on Salisbury Plain in England, constructed with huge blocks of stone which were hauled over a great distance. The monoliths required an estimated 1.5 million man-hours of labor to, That's be, just amazing. to be properly placed. Now, who figured that out? The people who did it. <laughs> hey, Ralph, I think we got 1.5 million to put in on our salary stub. One more. In 1733, an outbreak of influenza was so widespread in the United States that 
nearly three-fourths of the entire population was affected. That's an amazing... I saw that statistic. Isn't that fascinating? 1733. Not the good old days. Three-fourths. That's really... That's a fascinating thing. Here's a quick one, Bob. Okay. The U.S. government forbids what to appear on any American postage stamp? Uh, a living person. Yes. How did you know that? I, I always heard that that was true, but it seems to me recently there was a living person that appeared on a postage stamp, but it maybe does not. Seem, well, maybe since this trivia bit came out, maybe... Uh, maybe they made some changes. I don't know. I mean, yeah, that was kind of a, I think, a way to make sure this was, you know, kind reflective of... Yeah, reflective of something serious, you know. Yeah, but Mickey Mouse made it, didn't he? And Mickey Mouse... He lives forever. And then Mickey Mouse never lived, so... <laughs> what? <laughs> he only lived in the heart... Say what? Bob, you're, you're crushing my soul. I am so sorry. I didn't know that was hurt your feelings. Uh, move on. Okay. All right. What model U.S. automobile was manufactured clandestinely for 10 years after it was officially discontinued? The car was manufactured for 10 years clandestinely after it was officially discontinued. Well, odd. Very odd. I have no idea. I'll say the Nash. No, this is a car you liked, actually. The Etzel? No, this is, no. <laughs> it's a, such a shame. That was such a oh, wonderful really? modern car. The, Pete the Edsel was, no, the Edsel was named, you know, after. Oh, for the Ford's son, yeah. poor guy. Who, who uh, died later, but uh, yeah. Well, everyone does. And, and the car did too, but it yeah. was a modern car. It had all kinds of fancy things. My uncle had one. Did he? Oh yeah, it was really cool. It, but it. this car was manufactured clandestinely for 10 years after it was officially discontinued. It's one of your favorites. It's a Chevy. Impala? 57 Chevy. Really? The 57 Chevy. It went on for 10 years? Well, I learned to drive on that. Well, what happened was... Long after 57. A general motorist uh, stylist engineer, Ardell Malowick, he quit GM in mid-1957 when uh -huh. he found out that Chevy was going to drop its 1957 styling and go on to a longer, lower, wider 1958 model. So he and other 57 Chevy enthusiasts produced over... 200,000. You're kidding. Model 57 Chevys from 1957 to 67 in a small auto assembly plant outside of Jacksonville, Illinois. Well, that's amazing. So there, I know there was a market. It's the 1960s, and I'm bombing downtown, bombing the Ave, we used to call it, taking my dad's car. And it was, you know, middle, late 60s. And a kid pulled up next to me and asked me if I'd sell the car, my dad's car. Oh, really? Oh, that's funny. <laughs> and I, that I realized then that it was a coveted car. Uh, and you thought, maybe I can sell Maybe the car. I could, but I was in enough <laughs> trouble as it was. So well, I he stopped no. production because he was he heard GM was getting wise to him, and he didn't really? want to get into GM trouble. GM didn't notice that apparently, whole time. Well, apparently these cars kept coming out, and everyone was, oh, here's a nice mint condition, yeah, 57 mint. Oh, Chevy. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it was produced by this guy all wow. these years. That's amazing. It is. Huh. And this was an amazing show, Marcia. Thanks for all your great trivia questions You're welcome, today. Bob. Nice to be here. Here with you. you are an, we have amazing, no place else to we go. We have nowhere else to go. So we, everybody, treat each other nice, please. And if you're living alone, we'll come into your house and entertain you. <laughs> okay. But only, only through the internet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's it for today for Trivia for The Off-Ramp. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time when we come back with more fun and interesting information here on The Off-Ramp.
The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.